It's that special time of year in Washington when everything comes down to the wire. Lawmakers are trying to prevent another government shutdown, and they're trying to raise the debt limit while acting on key pieces of President Biden's agenda. Democrats in Congress are divided between progressives and moderates, and Republicans, they're sitting on the sidelines, eating popcorn and watching. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. In this week's episode, we're going to unpack all of this dysfunction to see if it can teach us any lessons about our politics and how to make it better. I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer at Clemson University. I'm Julia Azari. I am an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I am Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. Well, guys, this... There's a mess, right? This this reminds me, though, as I'm as I'm thinking back to all the past messes that Washington has had. I'm thinking back to there's a old silent film. I'm sure you all know it. You you strike me, especially you, Lee, as a film buff. The arrival of the mail train, right, where the train pulling into the station. Or my French is terrible because I'm from America and I'm from the South, um, so I can't say it. But la arrivée d'un train en gare, whatever. That is, but it's a short film. It's 1895. It's black and white, and it's a train pulling into the station, and it looks like it's about to crash into the screen. And for people who had never really seen trains or seen a film before, this was rather terrifying. And audiences allegedly were jumping out of their seats. They were trying to avoid this train, and it wasn't even an HD, 4K, 8K, ultra high resolution, whatever it is we have now. But of course, the train doesn't hit the audience members, the film stops, and it's just the train pulling into the station. There is no danger after all. It just appears that way. And right now, we look at Washington, we look at what's happening, and we get the sense that, holy smokes, what's going to happen here? This is going to be really bad. You see words like uh, catastrophe. You see words like uncertainty and disaster, and how are they going to avoid it? And they have four minutes, three minutes, two days left, whatever it may be. But in the end, it always turns out that the train just pulls into the station and the filming stops. And I get back to my own experience in Washington and to what's happened after that, that that's generally what always happens, right? The government always gets funded in some way for some period of time. The debt limit always gets raised at the last minute. All of these things typically happen. And so when we look at the debt bill, the spending bill that that the House passed, that the Senate now is going to uh, have a vote, a key test procedural vote on next week, what's going to happen here? I mean, am I wrong, Julia? Am I wrong to think that that this time's not going to be any different than all of the other times that have come before and that we could actually not raise the debt limit and we may actually not have government funding for all the different discretionary programs that we have in this country? Yeah, I think this is a great question. This is a great way to phrase it of kind of how far will this whole thing go? And I I feel like the answer is I don't know. So on the one hand, we have seen a kind of dynamic in which catastrophe has, I guess, mostly been avoided when that catastrophe is largely a product of lawmakers showboating. That honestly hasn't been entirely the case, and catastrophe has certainly been the, you know, name of the game for the last two years. Um, It kind of feels like we've been on this crash course since the lengthy government shutdown of early 2019, where you saw, you know, real kinds of, you know, going going to the brink and refusing to come to an agreement. 
And then, of course, like the last couple of years, this isn't really legislative in nature, but I feel like we've kind of been in a situation where our threshold for catastrophe has gotten, you know, been tested multiple times. And so, you know, it even though it's not terribly logical to think about that as informing the legislative context, it does sort of inform my thinking. So I guess, you know, when I think about the overall, the way that informs the sort of overall partisan dynamics and the increasing refusal of each side to grant legitimacy to the other side and the sort of direction of the Republican Party, it makes me think there's a lot more appetite there for um, really, you know, for really shaking things up and undermining some of these key like institutional values. Um, on the other hand, you know, Jonathan Bernstein, for example, has written and kind of said, you know, Democrats are just negotiating. It looks like they're in disarray because they're working things out. Everybody has a stake in the in this legislation. But ultimately, when it comes to the question of centrists and progressives, they're going to come to the table. So maybe the sum total of what I'm saying is there's maybe different dynamics depending on which which party we're talking about. Lee, you're the expert here on political parties and why they're all messed up. I mean, what do you make of this? What do you make of the, the dynamics that we see between Republicans and Democrats on these issues right now? I mean, first, I think Bernstein is right. I would be very surprised if Democrats didn't ultimately find a, a, a sweet spot in the maybe $2.5 trillion space. Moderates get some of what they want. They can claim credit. Uh, I mean, my working understanding of of how the Democratic Party works is that I never underestimate Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I never ever bet against Nancy Pelosi. I think she is incredible as a uh, leader of the Democratic Party in the House. And my, my sense is that a lot of what we see in the coverage is uh, a lot of very public positioning among moderates and progressives who want to have an image that they're fighting, but at the end of the day, there's an agreement there. But James, to, to your point about the the train running into the the, the, the train movie, um, which I I am familiar with and and I know that history well, there is another thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and I've been finding myself fascinated with the history of the lead up to World War One. Uh, which was a, a catastrophic blunder. And just finished a, a wonderful book by Margaret Macmillan, the, the War That Ended Peace. And one of the things that really strikes me is how much, even in the summer of 1914, there was a sense uh, among many of the European powers that we, you know, we couldn't possibly go to war, or maybe if we did, it would be over very quickly. And that was kind of based on the history that there had been plenty of bluffs and there had been Balkan crises before and there had been crises in Morocco and other places in which the great powers had had nearly come to blows uh, and nearly, uh, you know, actually sent some troops. Uh, but eventually, you know, somebody backed down and war was averted. So just because you've managed to to avert uh, crisis multiple times doesn't mean that it will always work out that way. And the other thing that, that strikes me in thinking about the parallels is the extent to which the, the powers of Europe really, by 1914, had really been locked into, into two 
competing uh, teams of alliances. And, you know, Britain had always kind of been on the sidelines, but eventually, you know, by 1914, they were, they were pretty tied in with France and Russia uh, to the point where they kind of had to step in. And, you know, so once, once, the, once the troops got mobilized... Uh, then all every other side saw what they were doing as fundamentally defensive. So you can see how there's this ratchet to war when everybody thinks they're just acting to protect themselves and to defend themselves from the other side's aggression. But that leads to aggression, which leads to aggression, which is kind of kind of a doom loop. Uh, and, and finally, I mean, I, I often talk about our, our politics as trench warfare, but that was, you know, World War One was the original trench warfare, uh, you know, and it was just, just games of inches in the mud and that went nowhere. And, you know, again, I mean, the war didn't need to go on for, for four years, could have been resolved, but once the, the troops had been committed and once countries had sacrificed lives, it was... You know, much harder to kind of step back and say this was all for nothing, and we're going to wind up where we were at the very beginning. So, you know, I, I think there's a a way in which you can get to the brink over and over again, uh, and and pull back. But once you cross that brink, things take on a a very different dynamic. And yes, you know, we've we've played this game of chicken multiple times. Uh, in which we've gotten to the brink of of the debt ceiling, and we've even had some government shutdowns that lasted for a little while. But with the government shutdowns, there's always been a sense that, oh, you know, Democrats or Republicans are losing. You know, I mean, usually it's Republicans who seem to lose, but at some point, you know, there'll be a resolution. But we're at, we're at a moment in our in public opinion and partisan politics in which nothing really seems to move. So once we cross that line, uh, you know, I, I think there's a way in, in which things could change very differently in the way that there was sort of this delicate balance of power in Europe you know, leading up to 1914, which you know, everybody, both sides, all the, all the great powers were kind of testing each other and bluffing and thought, oh, we know how to handle bluffs. But then at some point, you know, somebody calls the bluff and suddenly you're in a, a, a world in, in which tens of millions of, of people senselessly die. Yeah, I think, Lee, this is a great comparison, I think, with World War I and our politics today. And I look, I think that war and politics are very different things. I don't think that co political conflict, if it becomes too intense, becomes uh, violent conflict. I think that is a decision that people make to resolve their differences via force and violence instead of negotiation and bargaining and persuasion. It's, it's, a, it's a decision that you make and then you pivot to a different track. With that being said, there are a lot of similarities between politics and war, and we often forget this. And, you know, the idea that it is uncertain, it is an uncertain, incomplete information environment. It's uncontrollable. You can't, you can't control how a war unfolds. There's a give and take to it. You do something, you as a nation or a person, you take an action, and the other person or the other nation reacts in a certain way. And then that means that you react, and it and it forms this process. It's not a, a chain reaction per se, because we all have free will, but it is a process that you don't know where it's going to go. And so you got to kind of hustle, and you got to work really hard, and you have to kind of make the best guesses at the best times as to the best course of action.
Politics is very much like that as well. And what war does, and there's a lot of bluffing in war, there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of guesswork in war, but every time there are engagements, every time the decisions are made and actions happen, it reveals information to each side as to where each side is, what their, situ what their situational resources are, etc. And then that informs their willingness to continue fighting, their willingness to continue bluffing, to do certain things, etc. And a lot of what you see in politics today, I think, speaks to why we are in this kind of stalemate period and we're all on the outside and we're all guessing and we're like, why does it have to go this way? And, that, and it sounds rather simplistic, but when you are making decisions in a place where people can't really see, when there's an incomplete information environment, when the, when the signals get kind of mixed, it's very hard to get an understanding of where the other side is. And so maybe you take them at their word and maybe you say they're bluffing and then you, you plow forward and then it turns out they're not bluffing. Maybe it turns out that they were bluffing all along and you could have avoided whatever disaster you're trying to avoid. Uh, there's no way to test somebody's bluff in politics unless you force a vote. At the end of the day, that's it. I mean, you can sit in a conference room all day long and say, I'm not going to do this until you do that. But it's all about the ability to test your commitment to follow through on that. And I think you're right about Pelosi, and it, but it, it's also because she doesn't push things until she fully is comfortable with where the votes are going to be. Not all speakers are like this. Paul Ryan wasn't like this. In 2017, when the the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare repeal failed in 2017 when Republicans were in control. President Trump was in the White House. You have a situation where this vote fails in a very high profile way. And it's because Paul Ryan doesn't know where his members are. He doesn't know. He assumes he knows. And he assumes that those that are bluff that are saying they're going to oppose this are just bluffing. Right now, Pelosi, my guess is, assumes that people are just bluffing. But my guess is that she may not pull the trigger on these big spending bills, this big infrastructure bill, um, until she's confident of how the progressives and how the moderates are going to vote. And so, of course, that means that she's going to have a different kind of success rate than and some of the other members who have led the House, like Paul Ryan, who seem more willing to kind of roll the dice sometimes. Um, but as we're on leaders, let's talk about, you know, over on the other side, let's talk about everybody's favorite Senate cynic, Mitch McConnell. And he's really infuriating the Democrats right now, right? He says it's their responsibility to raise the debt limit. He's, he's saying, at least the way it's been reported, he's saying that this is their spending. This is their debt. We, the Republicans, will not help. And he's actually given quotes that says, am I bluffing? When people are like asking him if he's serious, he says, Do you, does it look like I'm bluffing? But if we read between the lines, and I'm interested to get your take on both this particular positionally, and then also kind of what this says more broadly about the Republican Party. But McConnell isn't saying this. McConnell never says what you think he's saying. On one hand, he's saying the debt limit has to be raised. Under no circumstances can the debt limit not be raised. And then he says, but I'm not going to raise it. So then you ask yourself, well, what happens when he gets into a position where he's forced to make a choice? And we've seen that before. We've seen that before. In 2014, McConnell was the minority leader. Democrats were in the majority. There's a Democrat in the White House. And granted, the House was under Republican control. And McConnell says privately in our Senate lunches that we Republicans aren't going to do this. We're not going to help them. We're all going to vote no, because that's a very clean vote. It's good. I like that. Then, of course, you have senators like Ted Cruz who say, I'm going to object to scheduling a vote. I'm not going to help them 
get a vote. It simple majority 51. I'm not going to give them my consent. So they're going to have to get 60. And that really upsets McConnell. It leads to a 45 minute vote on the floor because the Democrats don't have 60 votes. And eventually McConnell ends up switching because the moderates force him to if they're going to walk the plank and vote for this as well. So he votes for cloture on the debt limit. And I wonder if a similar situation would happen today. And then one other point, just to unpack this for our listeners, McConnell says Republicans aren't going to help Democrats raise the debt limit, but then he's basically pleading with them to raise it via reconciliation. He's begging them this special process that avoids a filibuster and that basically takes away Republicans' opportunity to stop the debt limit. So he's saying, we aren't going to do this. This is bad. It's your responsibility. And so please do it in a way that we can't stop. But incidentally, for a little procedural kind of intrigue here, he has to, Republicans have to cooperate on that as well, because the Democrats can't get a budget revision, a resolution revision out of the budget committee without Republican support. And they can't raise the debt limit without revising the budget resolution to change the reconciliation instructions so that they can do it. And so even there, it seems that Republicans are going to have to cooperate in some way, either by not objecting to a vote, by voting for cloture, or by supporting the effort to get this budget resolution revision out of the budget committee. So what is Mitch McConnell doing here, Lee? I mean, what is he, is he just trying to have his cake and eat it too? Mitch McConnell is a, is a hedgehog. He knows one big thing, which is to obstruct, obstruct, delay, obstruct, and you know, then, then see where things But he's go. telling the Democrats how to do this without him being able to obstruct in theory. He's saying, please don't let me obstruct. Like he's, is he really obstructing or is he just playing an electoral game? I, uh, is he playing an electoral game? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, you, you, you know McConnell better than I do. I mean, I mean, McConnell is also undermining his, his case for the filibuster because on the one hand, he's saying, you know, Democrats are the majority party, you know, the majority should act. And then he's saying, oh, we need the filibuster. We need to preserve the filibuster so that the minority has input. So, you know, either, you know, you work, I mean, maybe eventually he'll give in. I I don't know. I mean, I think he's under a lot of pressure to continue to fight. The Republican Party of 2021 is not the Republican Party of of 2013, particularly in the Senate, you know. So I... Yeah, I think the dynamics have changed a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I think I think ultimately the Democrats will will raise the debt limit through reconciliation, um, and that's fine. But in that you know, I mean, McConnell's in sort of a, a challenging position because you know, on the one hand, you know, he he wants to obviously stay as leader of his of his party. And there's a lot of folks, I think my sense, and you may know this better than me, uh, in the Senate Republican caucus who who want him to fight harder. You know, he, he also understands that by obstructing, he you know makes Democrats look bad. He contributes to the chaos in Washington narrative, which is good for Republicans with Biden in the White House. And at the same time, he's you know, trying to to somehow you know keep cinema and mansion on the view that bipartisanship can still work, and therefore we shouldn't eliminate the filibuster because if if the Democrats blow through the filibuster, that means a massive voting rights bill, uh, which I, I think will undermine uh, a number of the Republican attempts to make it easier for them to win the midterms. So 
I think McConnell's in a tough place, so he's just kind of doing what he always does. Julia, what do you, what, how do you read this, and how do you read this as it relates to President uh, Biden and his agenda? I mean, does that have any impact on this, or is it just purely McConnell trying to just do the best he can in, in a particular point in time as he sees it? So this is a this is a good question. I kind of have more to say about the institutional angle and the kind of broader angle than about McConnell himself. I mean, one thing that constantly frustrates me with McConnell, which is kind of captured in your question about cynicism, is is sort of, you know, what what does he want? What is the end goal? Um, you know, he's such a kind of player of the legislative game, but it's all about obstruction and about kind of winning, you know, winning for the sake of winning. And it's never clear what, you know, what it is he actually wants to do. And I think that's difficult to get your head around. I've been thinking a lot about this in general in American politics about the way that that 21st century politics has become this sort of symbolic conversation that's really not linked to any substantive debate. And obviously, there are important substantive debates to be had, but I don't see many of the leaders engaging in them. And I see McConnell as one of the kind of most prominent faces of this disconnect. Lee has been tweeting about getting rid of the debt ceiling as a kind of a concept. And I think that really encapsulates a lot of what I think, you know, the, the debt ceiling at this point, mainly exists to force Congress to have this sort of showdown <laughs> every couple of years. And it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't rein in spending, that's obvious. And that doesn't, and it doesn't rein in spending with either party, you know, most of this debt was incurred under Trump. So the, the argument, this is the Democrats debt isn't just isn't accurate. But that doesn't mean the Democrats don't also like to spend. Everyone likes to spend and no one likes to pay for it. And that's why we're supposed to have a freaking government um, to kind of <laughs> to have some rules. The debt ceiling instead becomes a sort of vehicle to further remove the debate about conflicts from the substance of those conflicts, to further make it about teams and winning. And that is sort of the essence of what I see going on with with McConnell right now and with with the sort of debt ceiling politics that emerged under Obama, but but weren't unique to that, right? There, it's always been sort of partisan back and forth. And so that's, I think, in theory, it can be useful to have these sorts of political institutions that can be used as kind of bargaining chips um, in the debate between the, the two sides and kind of holding the debt ceiling hostage to some larger principle, in, in theory, could actually be a useful bargaining tactic. But in practice, it's not because we've somehow gotten to a place where we're not playing a good faith game and where the arena of politics is being played out in a way that's kind of deeply removed from policy and from policy realities and from what the American people actually need their government to do for them. So I see this as sort of going deeper into a dysfunction that I think is very real is somewhat different than what you see covered in the media, but is nevertheless really concerning. That's my thought on on the situation. So I've been, I mean, I think McConnell is reacting the way someone in his position, the way you sort of expect them to react. I think the deeper problem is institutional. I agree with that. I mean, per usual, I think institutions and structures are, are a lot more important and determinative of our politics than we typically give them credit, whether it's in, in the media or in the academy or just every just out on the street, and certainly within the halls of Congress or in the White House or anywhere else in the universe. 
But with that, you know, I think what's really interesting about what you've just said, Julia, is the fact that the debt ceiling used to be used as a as a bargaining chip, a source of leverage to achieve a certain goal, right? To achieve a certain end. And we saw that in 2011 with efforts to control spending by Republicans. We've seen that in the past with efforts to either raise or lower taxes. And But it was always part of a larger bargaining process. Whereas today, it's not even appears to be that. It's just like, a, you got to raise this, we're not going to raise it, and then we're going to attack you for raising it, even though we say we want you to raise it, then we're going to run ads against you, and then we can win. And I think what that shows is that there's this shift, and I think a little bit of insight into McConnell and to others, is that there's this shift in their thinking, right, to this kind of factory mindset, where if you see the Congress as a factory and you see your job as building widgets, well, you have to make sure you control the factory. So now everything, everything goes through elections. Elections have always been important, but now they are like the most important thing ever. And not just a personal member's election, but their party's election, because after all, you've got to be in the majority, right? You can't do anything in the minority, according to this view. And so the stuff that happens in between elections gets subsumed to stuff that happens in elections. And I think that's, that's I think, a lot of the, the reason why we don't see a lot of action inside Congress now. And we see a lot of bluster out on the campaign trail about what happened and why people didn't do something or why they did something um, in between the elections before. But this raises, and I want to now get to this issue of kind of polarization and and the divisions we're witnessing right now. And, and Lee, you know, I just watched, I think I was sharing with you earlier, this documentary on Netflix, uh, Knock Down the House, about AOC and several other Democratic challengers in the 2018 cycle. It's a fabulous documentary. I highly recommend it to our listeners. I think it, it really was. It, it I'm just, It's an extraordinary documentary. And, and you can really get this sense of different levels of political skill and actually an AOC's kind of raw political talent and why she has been so successful to date by watching this. It also reminded me because of this uh, this group, the Justice Democrats, I believe it's the name, and they're helping to, to recruit candidates to challenge establishment Democrats. It reminds me of the 2010, 2012, and 14 kind of cycles with conservative groups challenging and trying to defeat incumbent Republicans because they don't like what they're doing. And I think both of these efforts highlight that there are a lot more divisions inside each party. And Julia, you and I, we've talked about this too. And so right now, as we look to the debt bill, the spending bill, the infrastructure bill, and the reconciliation bill, instead of conflict between the parties, which is what if you're you know, if you're an architect or a dentist on your way to work right now, you're probably thinking it's because the Democrats and Republicans can't agree. And that's what it certainly appears to be. But if you dig a little deeper, it's it looks like conflict inside the parties appears to be responsible for this gridlock, right? The conflict inside, the disagreements between moderates and progressives, right? That's the problem, it seems to me. And so how does this impact our understanding of polarization and, and what's wrong with American politics and then how we fix it and what kind of reforms we need? And Lee, I mean, what do you think about that? I think you know what I think. But uh, for, all, for all the dentists and architects out there, who I'm sure are, are avid listeners of our podcast, the, I mean, there's also, uh, addition to the divides within the Democratic Party, of course, there's also divides within the Republican Party. If it weren't for leadership in the House whipping the vote, I think there'd be some Republicans who would in the House who might support this infrastructure bill. Now, of course, there are divisions between the parties. You know, we, we have two parties. They're, they're big coalitions. They have a lot of different views within the party. 
And you know, though that diversity is, of course, subsumed when everything is a battle of, of D versus R. So if, if the parties, if we had more parties, you could see different coalitions coming together on different issues. And you might see on certain issues that, that you'd find some really interesting ways in which like the AOCs and the Ted Cruz's might work together. And you know, you'd see some, some, some centrist coalitions, some outsider coalitions. Things would be interesting again. Uh, instead, because as you say, James, everything is about being in the, ma- the majority right now. And the majority has all the power and the minority has none of the power except when uh, they filibuster in the Senate. Uh, we're in this moment of, of, of intense gridlock. And I want to pick up on, on a, Julia's incredibly important point about these institutional mechanisms that we have that are supposed to, uh, in theory, uh, encourage bargaining and uh, coming together, but instead are just used as tools to make it harder to bargain and you know, to me, the, the filibuster is the number one example of this. The folks who say that the filibuster encourages bargaining and negotiation, I'm not seeing that. All I'm seeing is that the filibuster is used as a, as a cudgel uh, by, the, by the minority party to prevent anything from happening. And you know, that, that works, I think, better for Republicans who seem to want government not to do anything at all, especially when Democrats are in power, whereas, you know, Democrats are willing to support some spending bills, even with a Republican in charge, because it helps, you know, they, they have some priorities that they would like to, to see get through. So you know, at a certain point, these, and I think of the sequester as well, right, these sort of ticking time bombs, these, you know, institutional thing, rules that are supposed to produce compromise, just produce dysfunction when there's no underlying political incentives to work together because every election is about drawing sharp, sharp contrast and the party out of power is always trying to show that the party in power is corrupt and can't govern. So uh, I don't know. Can, can we get you on board with, with eliminating the filibuster, James? I don't see the problem as being the filibuster simply because no one's filibustering. Right. If you want to have a vote on a bill, don't ask for unanimous consent. Don't ask somebody's permission. Just try to have a vote on the bill. When people stop talking, follow the rules, have a vote. If somebody wants to talk, let them talk. If then they sit down, have a vote. If they stand up and try to talk again, then boom, they give in their two speeches. Now you can have a vote. Rule 19. You, you, so talking, talking. Yeah, I mean, you can put a little effort into that, it. That, that we can get you on board with the talking you can, but the filibuster, not this. Just right, and this is a different debate for a different episode. But I think the 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 push to lower the threshold to invoke cloture or to get rid of the filibusters, we call it, is not about getting rid of the filibuster. It's about making it easier and more efficient for the majority to manage and control the legislative process in the Senate. It's, they're related, but it's a very nuanced and important distinction. And I do not support that because I don't think that's that's precisely why the Senate isn't working right now. It's And I think if you want to see the, the Senate work. You got to let 100 flowers bloom. You got to have more of a Mike Mansfield approach. You just got to let people do things. And at the end of the week, you know what? Something's going to pass. Something almost always passes. But James, when Mike Mansfield was the uh, Senate majority leader, 
you had half of Democrats who were elected in states that, that voted for a Republican for president, half of Republicans who were elected in states that voted for a Democrat for president. There are plenty of conservative Democrats, plenty of liberal Republicans. So you, you had an underlying environment in which you could have these coalitions emerge. But now you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a very different world. So you bring Mike Mansfield to the Senate today and he winds up like Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell. He's a product of his times. He's a product of the Senate that exists, not it, not the leadership style. I mean, you have two parties now that represent entirely different parts of the country and that see each other locked in in a, in a struggle for control over the fate of the nation. So I, I you know, I'm mystified. I take your point. And again, I think we need to have another episode on now Senate leadership, too, and House leadership in general. And leadership styles go with different environments. But I think the current environment, both inside and outside of the Congress, is much more conducive to a, a, an environment like the 1960s than it is like the 1950s. And I think the problem with the Senate right now is that we have leaders who are trying to manage Mike Mansfield's Senate like Lyndon Johnson would have. And I think the results are rather predictable. You can't really, you can't, nothing happens, you know, and it's really ironic that the, as their leadership power goes up, as we think about the Senate more as a factory, the the Senate itself becomes less productive overall. I'm not disagreeing with you about the the problem per se. What I'm saying is that there's something deeper happening here and the reforms that we prescribe to address the problem, which I think you and I both agree on, are going to impact that something different, deeper in different ways. And so that's and I think that's what we miss in the kind of in the filibuster debate. But I, I could be wrong. Julia, what do you think? OK, I have a lot of thoughts about the filibuster. I feel like we Who, have a- who's right, me or Lee? Who's right, me or Lee? Neither of you. Um, I feel like we have a lot of, uh, we have like a filibuster episode every three months, but it's, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that that's something we need to do. It strikes me that the filibuster is really about, here's my very brief comment on the filibuster, and then I'm going to try to wrap the, this, all of these thoughts. It strikes me that the filibuster has, serves two kind of very different, but, but can mutually reinforcing purposes. Now I feel like I'm introducing an episode of Law and Order. So on the one hand, it it provides Republicans with a sort of tool of obstruction for legislation they don't like, which is increasingly the kind of, you know, one of the things that the Republican Party does. And on the other hand, it provides the Democrats with a tool of blaming things on the minority party when they can't when they can't come to agreement and get things done. And that is obviously there are still these sort of deep fissures in the Democratic Party. And I think that's how we have to think about filibuster reform, which is an issue that I have gone back and forth on a bunch of times. So to kind of to wrap this all up um, as neatly as I can, which is to say not very neatly, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now is that we have intra-party division without coalition fluidity. I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm teaching Lee's book. <laughs> and so and he writes about the need for fluid coalitions. And that's, you know, especially something that's that's critical of the legislative and at, from the legislative angle, but obviously also flows from kind of broader coalition fluidity in other parts of the political system. And we just don't have that. But that that doesn't mean that, as we've said many times, and as James and I are strongly agreed upon, even though the parties kind of look polarized, they have a lot of different divisions within them. So we're sort of stuck in this in this stalemate for this reason, because the parties are internally divided and yet not able to not able to form themselves into fluid coalitions. And so having just said that I think a lot of these sorts of issues stem from the way the institutions are structured, 
I think it's also useful to think about the reality of some of these problems, the reality of, of the kind of policy and philosophical differences that underlie both the intra and inter-party differences, and not to let that get lost in the institutional discussion. So that's my that's my takeaway from this from this discussion, our news roundup about the, the debt ceiling debate. Maybe by the next time we record we'll know how that concluded. So that's you know, that's where I where I leave this. Um, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.